we go. Good morning. It's nice to be here. I was, uh, someone commented in the back as I was studying, how can you study with all this noise? I said, I have five children, a wife, a dog, a guinea pig, and a bunch of fish. Don't worry, I can tune you guys out, no problem. It's nice to be here this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Judges 16. And I won't take too long with the introduction. Uh, my wife sends her regrets. Uh, she's been on the road with me quite a bit lately. Uh, we've been uh, all over the peninsula. And um, this week was a good week for her to remain home at our home assembly in Ridgeville, which is just south of St. Catharines with the kids. Um, so she does send her regrets. I do have another speaking engagement this evening in St. Catharines. So we asked the children, would you like to go to Mississauga? Uh, hour and 20 minute drive one way or would you like to go to St. Catharines tonight for 10, 10 minute drive dad 10 minute drive we'll take that one so they'll join me tonight that's not to say they didn't want to be here but I think they were uh, uh, wanted to be at home with the friends with their friends at Sunday school I've been really enjoying this study I've had in my own personal life through the book of Judges and it's very reflective of what's happening in North America today, in the world today at large, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. And the book of Judges ends with both a hope of, of a king to come. The very last verse talks that there was no king in those days. And there was a, a really a vacuum of godly leadership. There was no godly leadership at times, decades even. And some of the leaders that were raised up, these judges that were raised up, were, were very faulty individuals. They had great faults, great weaknesses. They had great strengths, moral strengths, spiritual strengths. And in the case of Samson, the incredible, phenomenal physical strength that God gave him. But they were all, of course, lacking. They were lacking in their leadership. None of them, none of these judges were kings. None of them were royalty. None of them were governors or great leaders in the sense that they had all of the tribes of Israel united under them. But they were, in effect, a man or a woman in the case of Deborah that God would raise up for a time when Israel would fall into sin. This was this repetitive cycle throughout the nation of Israel. They'd fall back into sin. The law would be broken. And war would be a judgment upon them. You can see that in Judges chapter 2. That, that originally when they, con when they conquered the promised land, God went before them and prepared their enemies for defeat. And Israel would come in under the leadership of Joshua, an incredible general. And he would come in and it was, it was, it was beautiful. If you ever study war and you study the way they, they conquered Canaan, they came in and divided the country in half so that the north tribes and the southern tribes in those cities couldn't rally together against Israel, who was not a warring nation. And we see God's hand there providing for them victory over their enemies. But they failed to drive out all of the enemies of God, all of the enemies of Israel. They allowed provision for those who were in the land of Canaan to remain behind. And they, they, they gained a foothold in the nation. And they would plague Israel for, for decades and decades and decades because they did not listen to that commandment of the Lord, drive them all out. And God's punishment was, as, as of course they were influenced by those few remaining pockets of Canaanites, they were influenced to have pagan gods and worship pagan gods and, and worship the Baals and the Asherites. And, and God would bring war as a judgment upon them. And of course, in response, what they would do is they would repent. 
They would see the suffering that they would have because of their disobedience to the Lord. They recognized the sin in their life. They see the consequence of it, the punishment of it, was war from these neighboring nations whom they allowed to flourish amongst them in their midst. And then they would cry out to God, forgive us. And then God would raise up a deliverer. And this deliverer would be recognized as a judge of Israel. And he would lead the nations in military campaigns against those remaining pockets of Canaanites in order to drive them away and again return Israel to a position of prosperity and peace for a short period of time. There was no everlasting peace. Everlasting peace is only found in Christ. And in this time it pictures for us the need for a God-man, a unique individual to come in to give us true everlasting peace. The judges couldn't do that. They could offer for a short period of time physical peace. Physical peace. I can just remember when I was studying the life of Gideon. And here's Gideon who was hidden off in the corner of Israel doing women's work, threshing the wheat, hiding from the enemies of God's people. And there I can almost imagine as the raiding parties came back into Israel and would wipe out their crops and, and kill their livestock, that the children, what they would do is, is the parents would take their children and they would flock off into the hills and hide. So ill-prepared for war was the nation of Israel. Allowing these pockets of Canaanites to flourish right under their noses. And the children asking year after year, Dad, are we going to have to escape into the mountains again because of the enemies of God? Our enemies, the enemies of Israel. And of course, Gideon was raised up. Deborah was raised up. There were, there were a number of judges, six major, six minor, minor in, the, in that there's only just a short account of them. I'll leave that to your own study time. But in the case of Samson, he's an individual I'm absolutely fascinated with. Not just because of his superhuman strength. strength. He, he's, he's been often referred to as the biblical Hercules. You remember Hercules, Greek myth and his twelve labors? Sometimes he's compared to the epic of Gilgamesh, according to the Babylonians. But what that does is it traps Samson in a realm of, of myth and legend. And Samson is anything but a real man. The strongest physical man who ever lived. What he looked like, we don't know. Were his muscles rippling? I can't tell you because the Bible doesn't say anything about it. But we know that when he was in tune with God, and he was in fellowship with God, you remember, this is before the church age when the Holy Spirit now indwells the believer in the grace in this time of grace and the time of the church. The Holy Spirit did not indwell God's people. They would come, he would come upon God's people. He would strengthen them for a task. And when the task was complete, at times the Spirit of God would withdraw. Or in times of disobedience by the individual, the Spirit of God would withdraw. And that happens to Samson. His physical labors are incredible. He killed a thousand men, not with a machine gun or with a tank or the, the typical mechanisms of war we have today, but with the jawbone of a donkey. A thousand warring, military-trained Philistines. And he killed them single-handedly. He was able to rip a lion with his bare hands to shreds. In those moments, three times in this, in this text, uh, from, from uh, chapter 13 to 16, three times it says the Spirit of God came upon him mightily. 
when he killed a thousand Philistines, when he ripped that lion apart and so on. And it's hinted at a fourth time in his last great labor, his last great physical uh, 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 moment where he pushes the columns apart and destroys the Philistine nations, drives that, that almost fatal blow to them. It's, it's mentioned there that his hair began to grow. It's a very subtle reminder of God's grace. It's a very encouraging verse in the Bible. But in this case, in this case, there is no mention of the Spirit of God coming upon him in chapter 16. You know, I remember uh, speaking of the lion again. I'm, I'm going back to that because, you know, a show of hands, how many people here have actually wrestled a lion and survived? And I'm not talking those cute little cubs. Last year at the zoo, we have our family membership at the zoo at Safari Niagara down, down in Stevensville. And they had these, these four beautiful white African lion cubs. Beautiful, precious little animals. And you could hold them, you could pet them, you could hear them purr. Not like a, not like a house cat. It like would rumble in your hands. Now, a year later, I would not want to hold that animal because they are full grown. They are majestic beasts. Their paws are the size of my head. And I remember one time standing in front of the cage, and I'm thinking just how incredible Samson, how phenomenal his strength was to protect his parents as they're attacked by a lion and to be able to, to rip this lion apart. Not a mature, grown, physical lion, not a cub. As I sat there and, and, and made my way through the children, because I'm that kind of, kind of guy, as, 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 as we're all looking at the lion, I kind of wait for the kids to move, and the kids don't move, and I kind of just inch my way through, and, and I'll say, hey, how'd that really big guy get into the front? And the kids are behind me. And I'm looking at this lion who's running at the cage, and he opens his mouth, he roars, and it, it, it pushed me back. Kids are crying. They're crying beside me. And I'm looking at this lion. I, the spit hits me in the face. I can feel the heat of his breath. I can smell the, the dead, decaying carcass or whatever it is in his teeth. And I thought for a moment, Samson wrestled one of these beasts and killed it. That's incredible, the things he was able to do, physically speaking, because the Spirit of God was upon him mightily. When we talk about the, the destruction of the thousand uh, Philistines here with the, with the jawbone of a donkey, in, verse, or pardon me, in chapter 15, we, we now come to 16, which is our text this morning, just three verses. Twenty years have passed. Twenty years have passed, and the Bible is absolutely silent on any of Samson's accomplishments, any of his defeats, nothing is mentioned. We can speculate that he had some great success. Maybe in that 20 years he started to become very self-sufficient. Maybe he began to take his gift from God for granted. See, each of us are given gifts by God. When you become a believer in Christ and you trust in Christ, and you seek forgiveness and redemption in Him and Him alone on Calvary's tree, the wonderful news is we are saved. We are grafted onto the vine. Our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. All these wonderful truths and blessings that, that for us, eternity with the Lord is secure because we are in Christ, according to Ephesians 2, in the heavenly places. It cannot be taken away. It cannot be lost. It cannot be robbed from us. And when that happens, God gifts you. He gives you the gift of hospitality, of preaching, of prayer, of all these different gifts. The fruit of the Spirit begins to be developed in you. All nine of them, not just selective ones, but all nine of them are being developed in you. One singular fruit are being developed in you. 
And that's the incredible thing about the Gospel. We're completely changed. Our identity is no longer in ourselves, but in Christ. But we run a real danger, as Samson did, of becoming very secure in ourselves. Becoming self-sufficient, self-reliant. And the moment we do that, once we take our eyes off of Christ, off of the Spirit of God who empowers us to do great things for the kingdom of God, no matter what they are, we begin to sink like the Apostle Peter did. He took his eyes off of the Lord and began to be concerned with the waves above, and he began to sink. That's what happens to us. That's what happens to Samson. Samson had a fatal flaw. He had a weakness in his life, and it seems as though it's not until the end of his life that he finally recognizes this blind spot that he had in his ministry, in his person, in who he is. He had a wandering eye. You know, I can just imagine, way back, and we'll get to the text in just a brief moment here, but I wanted to give this little introduction, this little bit of background, that in Judges 13, Manoah, the father of Samson, is, and his, his wife, uh, I won't try to pronounce the name, the name is not recorded in the Scriptures, but according to the Talmud, it means the shadow falls upon me. That's what his mother's name means. The shadow falls upon me. And Manoah means rest, which is, I would assume that that's, that was Israel's longing, was to finally have rest from their enemies. And Shimshong, which is the, the Hebrew name for Samson, means little son. And the hope that they had in him is the rising of the sun. And when that announcement was made that, that you will have a son, that though your womb is barren, you will have a son, and he will begin to deliver Israel. Now that's the key. He will not deliver them in their totality. He will not accomplish this feat. It will not be finished by the end of his life, but he will begin those pioneering steps to deliver Israel. David would pick up the mantle and complete the deliverance from, from the Philistines. And his greater descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, would wage war on sin, the greatest enemy of mankind, and achieve a victory at the cross. But here Samson is told, or at least his parents are told in Judges 13, he will begin to deliver Israel from her enemies, primarily the Philistines. And you can imagine the heartbreak in his parents when he sees a woman of Philistines, one of the women of the Philistines, and says, I want a wife from there. Saw that she was good looking. And that's all he was concerned about. And how quickly his Nazarite vow was set aside in order to meet his physical needs. There is a real danger in the world for both men and women. As we see the encroachment of sin in our lives, we have to steady ourselves with the Word of God in prayer and by the power of the Holy Spirit and recognize that in our weakness He is strong and acknowledge we all have weaknesses. We all do. We have to admit that before the Lord and cry out to God. I am weak. And Lord, if you don't know what's your weakness, ask the Lord to reveal it to you. Because our own pride and our own sense, as I said, of self-sufficiency can blind us to it. Samson, at this point in time in chapter 16, has failed to realize his fatal flaw. Chapter, eventually, we see the fall of a great man as the chapter unfolds. As again, he loves Delilah. The only woman he loved. The other ones he lusted after. Delilah he loved and fell trapped to her again, to another person who was an enemy of God's people. And would be humiliated. You know that well. But here in verse 1, Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. 
And while the Gazelites were told Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they were quiet all night, saying, In the morning, when it's daylight, we'll kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight, and then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gate posts, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. You know, I mentioned all these things about Samson, a little bit of, little bit of history about him, the time of the judges, that very dark time, the only hope we get is in the book of Ruth, that kind of, that little shining light amongst these dark days in the time of the judges. And here we find that Samson, who would be oftentimes referred to as the biblical Hercules, I mentioned that, is oftentimes dismissed as a myth. And yet we find him tied to a very specific place, a very specific time, with very specific parents. And we can be rest assured that he is in fact not a Jewish myth. He is not this, this, this Jewish Hercules that, 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 that would rally Israel a son of which shows the potential of what the Jews can be, but in fact is no incredible Hulk, no Captain America, no false person of myth or legend, but is a real man in a real place in a real time. And here we find him, uh, this man who, who had great strength, displaying for us his greatest weakness. I mentioned 20 years has passed. He now sets his sights on Gaza. One of the great five cities of, the, of Philistia, the, 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 the Pentapolis of Philistia. Gaza meaning the strong place. And what's fascinating is when we mention the gates, the gates were really a picture of the strength of a city and its security. But we find here as Samson comes to Gaza, we don't know why. We can assume, and we have to be very careful when we speculate, but we know here as a judge, as the man chosen by God, his long hair flowing, a symbol of his relationship with the Lord, the Nazarite vow that both he took and his mother when she was pregnant with him, he is taken very casually. But he is identifiable as the man of God. Once the word got out, they, they recognized him. Samson's come here, they say in verse 2. They know who he is, this great enemy of the Philistines. And he comes in, and, and what's, 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 what's disturbing about verse 1 is Samson, <coughs> who the writer of Hebrews says was a man of great faith. He was a man of great faith. We see Noah, we see Abraham, we see Sarah, we see David, we, we see Samuel, we see yes, 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 and we get to the name Samson. Wait a minute. That's got to be a typo. Who subdued cities. And so it's disturbing to us when we see that when Samson comes to Gaza, speculating he's there to do God's work, to what better place to strike a fatal blow than the strong place of the Philistines, that he does not march in and wage a single-handed war on this city, but in fact turns to the left, turns to the right, takes his eyes off of the Lord and goes to a prostitute's house. If this was describing a Philistine, we'd be very comfortable with that. After all, they're not God's people. But when, it ha when we see this about a man of God, it's disturbing. There's no mention of a struggle. No moral struggle in Samson. No mention of, of him wrestling with the sin. And let me encourage you, if you have a sin in your life that you're wrestling with, praise God because the Holy Spirit is wrestling with you about it. He is convicting you. 
People have asked me, you know, Bobby, I sin and I struggle with this and, <clears throat> and I wrestle with that and, and yet I, I, I find I succumb to it. And I said, well, at least you're admitting that you have a sin problem. And it's encouraging to me as a minister of the Word of God and as an elder at, at the chapel that you're struggling with it because it would concern me if you had no struggle. If you just simply waltzed into the arms of sin. But the fact that you are attempting to put up some type of resistance, that you are struggling with it, tells me the Holy Spirit is at work in you. And He is working in you self-control. And that's something we can pray to. That's something that we can ask God to strengthen you, to shore up the, to shore up the walls of your heart against this great sin. That's encouraging to me when I hear somebody say, well, I'm struggling with it. Some would say, well, that's not really encouraging. I'd rather hear that than say, I have no struggle with it and I succumb to it very easily. Look, but don't touch. Touch, but don't taste. Taste, but don't enjoy. It very quickly becomes just enjoy. And the, the people are struggling. But when it comes to Samson, there's no struggle. And it's disturbing as a judge. As a man who has seen God do incredible things through his hands by strengthening him, who would so easily succumb to this, is disturbing. Samson had a great weakness and yet failed time and time again until the end of his life to recognize this great moral weakness in his life. But when we continue on here, we see in the life of Samson, in verse 2, what he did was extremely foolish. It was extremely foolish what he did. He allowed this encroachment of sin in his life. He, he, he was dull to any type of sensitivity to sin. And here he, he has this very flippant attitude toward his relationship with the Lord. He was very cavalier. He reminds me of the Christian who has one foot in the world and one foot in glory. And you can't have your allegiances divided between heaven and earth. We have to remind ourselves, and as Samson should have as he marched into enemy territory, that we are, if you are counted amongst Christ's people, we have to remember that world out there, as beautiful as it is with all the grass and the trees and the butterflies flying, and its originality was good, is enemy territory now we are in enemy territory this isn't our home and if our heart is set on this earth how can we have our heart set on christ and those things as it says in colossians and i believe in ephesians or philippians to have our heart set on things above if we are so focused so singularly focused on the world Monday to Saturday, and we show up to chapel on Sunday and we feel good about ourselves and we take of the communion in the cup and we, we listen to the preacher and he makes a couple of good anecdotes. He has a nice little story. And, 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 and you know what? Maybe, maybe I'll read a little bit about Samson. I know lots about him. He had a great hairdo and because of his hairdo, he's really strong. And we go back out into the world and there's no difference in us. Your heart's in the world. And we have to reevaluate our lives. We have to reevaluate our hearts. We have to be very careful that we remind ourselves we're in enemy territory. We're ambassadors for Christ here in the world. And we have to stay true to that great calling. That great calling of upwardness, of, of being uh, uh, that upward calling of Christ likeness. 
Well, as I said, 20 years has passed here, and, and he has fell to success. Well, pardon me, he's had success. That success has bred pride. That pride has bred self-sufficiency. That has given in to self-indulgence. And now we find Samson trapped in spiritual indifference. That's a very real danger today. You know, we just allow a little sin in our lives. Just a little. Just, just a touch. Just a taste. I'm going to watch that television program. I, you know, some people say, Bobby, you're 41, but sometimes you preach like you're 95. But I want to be very serious. Because I'm only 41 years old, but I have seen the world change dramatically in the age of the internet. Many things for good. Many things for evil. Evil. And I remember TV shows like Andy Griffith. Good, strong family values. I even remember it in syndication, walking, watching it in black and white, could still sing the, the theme song. I love that show. Strong fatherly figure, a son who was obedient, who sometimes got into trouble, and the father disciplined him because he loved him, and an, a grandma who was there, and so on. The town was a community, and they loved God. And now you find none of that. And we just allow a little bit of that to filter in on our televisions and our computers and our phones and our children are exposed to it. And then they become very dull to sin. Our sensitivity to sin is, is diminished. It becomes very dull and all of a sudden we're, we're, we're so engrossed in sin we've lost what the, the concept of personal holiness. We've lost it. And our testimony is absolutely tarnished. That was David's great sin. His great sin, yes, with Bathsheba, David was a murderer. He was an adulterer and all these types of things. But his great sin was giving opportunity to God's enemies to blaspheme God. David was God's man. And yet he gave in to all this sin and it gave opportunity for God's enemies to say, this, this is God's man? We have to be so, so careful. Remind, remind ourselves our testimony our witness are precious things in a fallen world. Samson lost sight of that. As they knew where he was, they knew that he was in the room in the house of a prostitute. This is God's man. What type of witness is this? Well, we see here that in verse 2, and we have to be very aware of that in verse 1, that we are in enemy territory. We have to be sensitive to sin. In verse 2, we remind ourselves what he did was, was and I, I use this word, it is a biblical word. I believe it's in Proverbs. If my son, if my nine, eight-year-old son was sitting there, Dad, you can't say that. What he did was stupid. Dad, you can't say that word. But it was stupid. It was foolish. He positioned himself in a place where he was extremely vulnerable to the enemies of God and an attack by them. We have to be very aware of where we are, what we're doing, what we're saying, how we say it. We have to be on guard and not give the enemy not even an inch of a foothold in our lives. And if he does encroach in our lives to take an opportunity to pray to God, get him out of here. Get behind me, Satan, in the name of Christ. Oh, and he will retreat. I believe it was Spurgeon that said during one of his very famous Christmas, Christmas messages that just at the name of Jesus... Just at his name, the devil runs terrified and scared and goes into hiding. Just at that name. But what he did here was foolish. Here he is in a prostitute's house. We, again, only speculating if he is there to do the work of God. We can't be sure. We can possibly come to that 
to that, to, that, to that conclusion because he's in Gaza, which is the great strong city of the Philistines. And there is distracted by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the, uh, the, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He is drawn away the, into a prostitute's house. And there the Gazites said, Samson's come here. And they surrounded the place. They were now ready for him. Were the Philistines ready in that great battle where he killed a thousand of them? We can't be sure if they were on guard and ready for his attack. Was the lion ready for a human, for a man, to rip it apart? Probably not. But now the Gazites, oh, they're ready. We've got them right in our crosshairs. This man who killed a thousand of our kin, this man who is God's chosen person to destroy our nation, our great five cities. And so they lay in wait. And Samson is there vulnerable. And what wakes him up in the night, we cannot be sure. There's no mention in verse 3 of, of, of uh, anyone waking him, of the Lord waking him, of the prostitute waking him. We don't know what wakes him. But in the middle of the night, he arose at midnight. And what's amazing is as he leaves this, this house with, the enemies, with his enemies surrounding him, he makes his way to the city gate. And you know, in those days, they would close the city gate. And any of us who are, are students of the Bible know that they closed the city gates to keep the enemies, to keep any predators outside of the town. There would have been a watch set. These men were ready whether they fell asleep or not. Their plan was to attack him at daylight when he was possibly exhausted from a night of expending himself. We can't be sure, but they were waiting until daylight. That first crack of light. That little sun. S-U-N. That little sun was supposed to give hope to Israel when, that, that when the daylight first beckons over the horizon. We're going to destroy Samson. We're going to enact vengeance upon God's man of Israel. And Samson, we don't know what wakes him. Could have been the Lord, possibly. The Bible, the text doesn't say. Could have been a rustling. Could have been the men outside. Something stirred Samson to wake. And he awoke in, at midnight. And he quietly leaves and comes to the city gates that are now locked in order to keep enemies out. And in this case, keep Samson in. And what he does here, again, is this absolute phenomenal strength that God has blessed him with. And he grabs the city gates. And it's only one verse that describes it. But oh, how it describes it in the Hebrew. It's as, it's as though you're reading a comic book, and I don't want to compare Samson to a comic book character, which is mythological, but it's as though the comic book is just, if you've ever read a comic book, it's just the scene, just these big words right across the, right across the page. Two pages covered up, Samson pulling out the gate. And the emphasis is the strength in which he has as he pulls the gate out right out of the ground, right out of the wall, and begins to step out of the city. And I can just imagine as they heard the city gates which are a symbol of the strength of the city falling to the strong man of God. How they looked and were just absolutely floored by what was happening before that. How do you respond to that? To see this man, and I'm not talking one of these little wagon gates that you have in your yard. Oh, my son could rip one of those apart, no problem. I'm talking something that weighed a ton. And he rips it out of the ground, puts it on his shoulders, and begins to take a stroll toward Hebron. How do you respond to that? They're absolutely dumbfounded. 
What chance do we have against this man? Maybe they only heard about the battles against the Philistines. They heard the rumors on the wind that he's able to kill adult lions. They never actually physically saw him. And here they physically see him pull out the gates and begin to march away. This is an incredible, incredible thing to see. But why? Why rip out the city gates? If Samson was just simply trying to escape, which he was, why didn't he just kick down the gate? Why didn't he just remove... If this was just an escape plan, if this was just a story of him escaping Gaza, why mention the gates being ripped out of the walls, ripped out of the ground, bar and all, placing them on his shoulders, making his way toward Hebron? Because that's what it says in, at, toward the end of the verse. And carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Why mention all these things? The writer is being very deliberate to tell us what Samson is doing, but why is he doing it? At the beginning of Samson's ministry, he is told that, well, at least his parents are told, who no doubt would have told Samson at some point in his life, you will begin to deliver Israel. There is a judgment coming on the enemies of God. There is a time where the Philistines will be destroyed because they are at war with God and God's people. And so there is a judgment to come. But you'll remember that the Israelites were defeated. The Philistines, marauders, they would attack constantly year after year, take away the greatest of of their their assets, their crops, their their livestock. They They were essentially a victorious nation living in defeat in the Promised Land. And so when Samson picks up the gates, not only is there, we'll say for lack of a better phrase, awe factor in his enemies as they really don't know what to do with this man who was able to rip out a, a ton of, of metal, twisted metal right out of the ground. Wood and all, everything that combined to make the gate and begin to walk off. But it was a judgment. It was a warning of the impending judgment on the Philistines. This great fortified city of the nation whom Samson would come into, and yes, he failed. He failed miserably, and that is the wonderful news of God's grace. Even though he failed, and it doesn't mention that the Lord was, it does not mention the Holy Spirit coming upon him mightily, but we still see the strength, the gifting that God had given him. He was able to escape this sinful situation. And it speaks to the Philistines of the judgment that is coming upon them as the enemies of God. There is a judgment on this world. There is a judgment. The Lord came that first time not to judge the world, but to save the world. But there is a judgment coming. When the Lord returns, it says He shall return and His feet shall shall land on the Mount of Olives. And the, the very Mount of Olives, that mountain will crack under the weight of His authority. And the world is under judgment because it is at war with God. It has rejected God. It spits in the face of God. It blasphemes the name of God. It wants nothing to do with God. It is so consumed with its sense of of, of self-sufficiency and awe and of itself. And God says there is a judgment coming. There is a day that is yet to come at the end of the age of grace, at the end of the church age, where there will eventually be a judgment. And all those who pass away and give up their last breath without being in Christ are destined for the great white throne judgment not my idea not a philosophy but from the very word of god from the very mouth of god that there's a judgment coming 
but it also served a second purpose. As, as Samson lifted up these gates and made his way, why mention Hebron? There are some say that Samson just lifted the gates, stepped out a few steps, and dropped the gates and ran home, tail between his legs. That's not what the text means. The text literally means that he took it up to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. And where's Hebron? Right smack in the middle of the heart of Judah. Right in the middle of God's people's country. And there on the mountain, this great city gate, which is a symbol of the strong city. You remember Gaza? The strong city. The symbol of its strength ripped from its foundations. As easily as I could take a, a lollipop from a baby. Any, any babies here with lollipops? No? As easily as I could do that, he rips out these gates and carries them to a hill that faces Hebron and leaves them there. Not only as a reminder that there is judgment to come to God's people, despite the unfaithfulness of God's people, God's judgment is of Himself. It is not based on the faithfulness of God's people. It is a promise that He has made that He will judge the nations. But also as an encouragement to Israel. It's an encouragement to us today that the enemies of God shall never prevail. They will never win. Though it may seem like as Christians are being martyred all across the globe, that we are being silenced in North America, that we are now rapidly becoming the most persecuted faith group there is in the world, quote-unquote. That it seems as though finally Christianity has run its course and in this postmodern era where, 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 where post-secondary education seeks to indoctrinate children, indoctrinate young people with everything aside from the Bible, it seems as though we've lost. We're losing an entire generation. <coughs> and we raise up our hands to God and say, we're losing the war. And we look here and we remind ourselves as they did in that age, as the Israelites would have looked up at the gates of Gaza, we look to the cross. And the Lord says, what about the world? The world did not defeat me. I have overcome the world. You know, it shouldn't surprise us that we're so hated. Because the Lord said very clearly, they will hate you. Why? Because it first hated me. It first hated me. And so when we look at this war that's going on between good and evil, for lack of a better uh, uh, illustration, Satan is already defeated. He was defeated at a cross 2,000 years ago. Death was defeated. The grave was defeated. Oh, sure, we still see folks pass away. It's almost been three years I buried my father. Thank the Lord he was saved at the end of his life. And there still is a sense of the sting of death. I miss my father every day. Every day. I miss my grandparents every day. I miss friends that have passed away. Some in Christ, some outside of Christ. And so there still is that sting. But the finality of it is not there. I know I will see my father again. I know that I will see my grandparents again. I know I will see my friends again who have trusted in the Lord. And in that way, the sting has been taken away. There will be a great reunion as we look upon the face of the Lamb. As we're all gathered together. And yes, there is judgment, but there is encouragement that the enemies of God have been defeated forever, eternally. Satan is a defeated foe, though he tries to continue to, to, to wage these little skirmishes on, on, on the fringes and on the borders of Christianity. He cannot win because Christ has overcome the world. And that's the great news of the Gospel. That as, as lacking as Samson was, 
as, 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 as fatal as his blind spots were, we have a judge, we have a king, we have, we have a ruler, a prophet, the Son of God who never fails, who never had a blind spot. He was the one who was without sin. The one who was so sensitive to sin. Imagine that, without sin. In him there was no sin, the Bible says. The sinless sin bearer, Isaiah tells us. And how sensitive he would be all around, that the sin was just all around him, and yet he, was, he stood apart and stood alone as the sinless sin bearer of the world. There was no moral weakness in Christ. He was tempted in all things, the Bible says. And in the wilderness for 40 days, Satan himself eventually, when the Lord's body physically had reached its maximum, tired and thirsty and absolutely, absolutely exhausted, that's when Satan launched that attack upon him when he was at his physical weakest. And even when Christ was at his physical weakest, he was a thousand times and infinity times infinity more stronger than Samson ever was when it came to those attacks. Samson walked into Gaza and he fell to sin. And Satan came and attacked Christ at his physical weakest. And the Lord Jesus Christ never succumbed to sin. That's our judge. That's our king. That's our ruler. That's our Lord. And the wonderful thing is, now that we are his, he is no longer our judge. Because he's been judged. He's been judged at the cross on our behalf. He stood in the gap of sinners. There He took our place. There He died. There He suffered. He suffered alone. You think about that for a moment. In the eternal realm of the triune Godhead. Never alone. Always in perfect fellowship with the Spirit of God and the Father. And there He was alone. Why? Because our sin was upon Him. And how wonderful it is to know that He is alive today. And is no longer our judge, but is solely our King. He is our Savior, our Redeemer, and in Him there is no weakness. Now as we wrap up, you can't leave Samson here because we know what the next few verses holds for him. We know that he will succumb yet again to Delilah and the temptation of revealing his secret. And of course, the secret is there was no strength in his hair. Even the most pagan of individuals knows the story. Well, his strength was in his hair. It was never in his hair. It was a symbol of his relationship with the Lord. It was a picture. It was a physical, outward manifestation of an inward truth that he was a Nazarite consecrated for the work of God. And he took that relationship so casually, so flippantly, that he reveals it, his head is shaved. And in that moment, because of how flippant he was in his, in his vow as a Nazarite, finally, the long-suffering nature of God we see comes to a very brief hold as his spirit departs from Samson and he becomes incredibly weak. He is able to be bound up. He is brought in before the Philistines, the very ones whom he killed a thousand of their, of their warriors, the one whom, whom he ripped out their city gates, the, uh, the, the one who seemed almost flippant in the way he, he killed people and executed people on behalf of God. And now he is, his eyes are plucked out, he is blinded, he is pathetic, he is weak, he is led around by a little boy, a little lad. And there he is brought out every once in a while as they're all gathered together to perform these little tricks as a little circus clown before the Philistines. And finally, that most encouraging verse in verse 22, however, the hair of his head began to grow again 
after it had been shaved. The grace of God is incredible. It knows no bounds on this side of glory. Even on your deathbed, if you repent and you trust in Christ, you will be saved. It's that name, Jesus. uh, The name given amongst men under heaven, on the earth, and under the earth by which we must be saved. And here, as Samson is led around again, brought out as a party favor for the the lords and the kings of the Philistines. These are the movers, these are the shakers, these are the, the power brokers of the Pentopolis of Philistine. And they gather together, bring out Samson one more time so we can see this guy, who's the great deliverer of Israel, perform for us some circus tricks. And the little lad leads him out, and he prays one last time as he asks the boy, put my hands upon the columns and you know it well. In that last prayer, he finally recognizes his own sinfulness. And in this prayer, though it's not direct, the heart of it is he repents and says, Lord, one last time. One last time, strengthen me. And he puts his hands on the column. He pushes with all of that God-given strength that he has. Supernatural, phenomenal, fantastical strength. And he pushes those columns. And in that last moment, as he recognizes his own sinfulness, repents, God strengthens him, and he says, I shall die with them. As he sacrifices himself, he deals a fatal blow to the nation of the Philistines. Because in that moment, he killed more influential people, the lords of the Philistines, the kings of the Philistines, and he destroys more of them, more of their infrastructure in that moment than he did his entire ministry. And here, finally, at the end of his life, he finally lives up to that which was promised at the beginning, before he was even born. Here, he begins to deliver Israel. As fatal as Samson's flaws were, It reminds us again at the end of the chapter, and I began with this, that in that day there was no king in Israel. But we have a king. We have a king. And there is no weakness in him. No weakness in Christ. Our loving Father, we thank you for this time again around your word, and we give you thanks again that we can look into the lives of of your people so many years ago, and not only to glean truths from from their strengths and, and to really just have a moment to celebrate their victories in Christ and in you, Lord, but to also learn from their weaknesses. Father, help us to examine our hearts, to recognize those areas of our lives where we are weak, and to look to you to strengthen us, to shore up the borders of our hearts. As we see the encroachment of sin in all of our lives here in the church, Lord, help us, Father. We pray that you would strengthen us to recognize these things, to repent of these things, to turn away from these things, whatever form they would take, and that we would look to you again to strengthen us. Father, we thank you for the life of Samson a man who is considered and is is described as a man of great faith. And in those moments, we see how far he fell, the mistakes that he made. It seemed as though he never even struggled with sin. And Lord, we would pray that we would have a struggle when there's sin in our lives, that the Holy Spirit would prick our hearts and we would be sensitive to that. And that we would repent, that we would turn away. But we thank you in the life of Samson, we see again the extent of your grace. Here's a man who frolicked with the enemies, who took upon himself just this lust of the eyes and the pride of life and the lust of the flesh, and yet you could do incredible things through even this man, the strongest man who ever lived, and yet was so morally weak. What hope that gives us, Lord. We thank you for that. 
We thank you for your grace and that your grace is sufficient. So Lord, we give you all the praise and glory. We thank you again for the name of Christ, the person of Christ, your beloved Son. In his name we pray. We pray for traveling mercies this afternoon. Whatever we may be doing would be honoring to you. Giving you thanks in his name. Amen.